Well, we're in a series on the Gospel of Luke, and we have been for quite some time, and we come to uh, the final week in what has been really kind of a sub-series, really a deep dive on the Lord's Prayer, at least Luke's account of the Lord's Prayer. And over the previous five weeks, we have looked at many of the implications of Jesus' prayer, whether it pertains to our justification or our adoption as his, his children or our sanctification. And this week, we move past the prayer itself and consider how Jesus wants us, through the illustrations, really the parables he gives, to approach God as our Father and how good he is and the kinds of gifts he wants to give us. Again, as we have done uh, for the previous five weeks, we're going to read the whole thing, the whole uh, section of Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13, so that we can get the whole feel, the whole context of what uh, Jesus is teaching. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight, and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer him from within, Do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and, I, and give you anything." I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Then I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go again to Him in prayer. Father, we give you thanks for your Son, Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray this simple prayer, which is a great model for all of our prayers. We thank you that He has poured out the Spirit, that we might be in communion with Him, that we know You. Because we know You, we know that we can pray with confidence that You will give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear. And so we pray that You would do that now, that this Word might be helpful and useful in building us up in faith, hope, and love. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I just mentioned in the the prayer, uh, Jesus doesn't uh, merely give a prayer formula. You know, as if a prayer is, is kind of like a recipe or, I don't know, a magic spell. You know, just pray this and God will be compelled to respond to you. No, he gives a model or a rubric for how to pray. So you can actually just pray this prayer and it is very good, even as we're encouraged, I think, through Jesus' own practice to build our prayer life off of this prayer. Even so, when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, he wants them to understand how God regards the prayers of his people and how he invites them to seek him in prayer. And Jesus does this by, by after giving us this instruction, by telling what would have been perceived by his audience or by his disciples as an utterly ridiculous parable. Now, at this point in history, hospitality was taking, taken very 
seriously in Jewish culture. I mean, far more, far more than in our own time. And if someone received a midnight caller, which, you know, given the imprecise nature of, of travel and navigation in the ancient world and, well, the lack of hotels, it's a real possibility that this could happen. And it was expected that, of course, the caller would be received and fed and given a space in your home. And what's more, the community itself would come to the aid of the house receiving the caller. So it was inconceivable, just inconceivable that if a friend, not a neighbor, not a stranger, but your friend knocked on your door at midnight saying, hey man, I am so sorry to, to bother you, but my, my cousin unexpectedly just showed up. I'm out of everything. And, and I was planning on going to the store in the morning. Do you have anything I can use to feed the guy? That in response to that situation, you, not only would you not open the door, maybe you're just looking through ring, I don't, I don't know. You're not going to open the door and you're going to say, listen, man, I've been in bed since 10. Just go to find a gas station. You're on your own, pal. Just leave us alone. Now, it's inconceivable even now that if someone, one of your friends showed up at your door that you would treat them that, even more so in this time period. So Jesus says that even if the man wouldn't get up because the man is his friend, which that should be enough, because the man at his door is shamelessly persistent, or as our Pew Bibles translate it, impudent, that is because he's desperate and he refuses to leave, to quit asking for help, the man will finally get out of, of bed and help. Jesus then says, and I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened for you. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds, and the one who knocks, excuse me, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. And of course, the question is, asks for what? Or seeks for what? Or knocked on which door? In the most general sense, Jesus is referring back to the prayer that he, he just taught his disciples, and it has in view really God and his own hospitality. Seek God's kingdom. Ask for God to provide for your every need. Seek his forgiveness and ask him to strengthen you in the midst of tests and temptations. He wants to do these things for you. Ultimately, however, and we'll come to this shortly, what Jesus has in mind really runs all the way to the giving of the Holy Spirit, which in a certain sense is the gift that just keeps on giving. But it's worth talking about what Jesus does not have in mind when he says, ask and you will receive. Now, perhaps you've heard passages just like this one used to justify asking God for just about anything and, and everything. And I remember hearing a sermon in the college campus ministry I attended in the mid-90s where uh, we had a guest pastor there preaching who, who I actually knew, and he said that God wants us to ask for our heart's desires. He invites us to share everything with him, and God wants to give us good gifts. So ask him for whatever you want. And while I actually agree with that in principle, our hearts often desire things that are opposed to God, or at the very least, would lead us away from God. It's like what we discussed last week. Temptation is the enticement to break faith with God, and the enticement is rarely, if ever, a wicked thing in itself. So I've never heard anyone say they wanted to be a murderer, or that they wanted to be a drunk driver, 
No, the enticement comes from something good that is twisted, like the desire for justice, which twists into the desire for vengeance, or the enjoyment of alcohol, which twists into being consumed by a spirit other than the Holy Spirit. So if you consider the temptation Jesus faced, for example, in in the wilderness, Satan did not tempt Jesus with evil things. He tempted Jesus with good things that God had promised to give Jesus. And as you know, Jesus was led by the Spirit. Think about that. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, a replay both of Adam's testing in the garden, but really more so Israel after the exodus in the wilderness. And like Israel in their testing, well, Jesus was taking all of this on an empty stomach. So Satan tempted him with three separate but but related enticements. First, the promise of food. The promise of food. Will you wait on your father to feed you, or like Adam, will you take it for yourself? And in your starvation, will you grumble against God like Israel did before you? Two, in turn, Satan tempted Jesus with the promise of receiving all the kingdoms of the world without having to die for them. A bloodless coup that would uh, bypass the atonement for sin if he would only worship Satan, as all the previous world powers had done. Satan then called into question whether God was actually good, and he devised a test that would prove God's faithfulness to Jesus, throwing himself off the top of the temple and miraculously landing in the center of Israel's religious and national life as if he had descended from heaven. Not only would certainly the religious powers flock to him, It would also prove to Jesus concretely that God was for him. Now think about it. Food is good. Jesus receiving the kingdom of God is good. Knowing that God is faithful in this life and the next is good. The enticement comes when we call into question what God has provided or will provide or has promised to provide. Whether it's related to, let's just think about this, our daily needs or when we consider, say, the despair and nihilism of the current political landscape, or when it seems as though God is silent and we want him to provide a sign or proof for us that we can know for certain, without question, that he is faithful to us and he actually hears us. Consider, for example, the prayer of Proverbs 30, verses 7 through 9. Uh, Proverbs 30 is is actually entitled or attributed to to Agur, the son of Jaka, the oracle. That's a name. That's a name. Here's what he prays. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So the two things that Agur, the oracle, desires, they're incredibly instructive for us. Incredibly instructive for us. First, he wants no part with falsehood and lying. He wants no part with falsehood and lying. So like James teaches, he wants his yes to be yes and his no to be no. After all, the father of lies is Satan, and Agur desires to be like God, the father who is righteous and the author of truth. And to desire this, this aspect of being truthful and being not part to lies and falsehoods, it's beautiful. It is beautiful, but it is also asking for trouble. 
and it's asking for pain because the truth inevitably leads to conflict with lies, especially if you speak the truth and refrain from participating in lies. Now, second, he neither wants to be rich or poor. Now, imagine an American praying that. He neither wants to be rich or poor, but wants God to meet his needs so that, one, he will not be rich and deny that it was God who fed him. A temptation we who are rich, living in the wealthiest country in human history, face all the time. Or two, that in his poverty, he would fail to trust that God really will provide for him, and so he takes what is not his to take. He steals, and in turn profanes God's name. Now, why would someone pray this? Why would someone pray something? I mean, this sounds nothing like what most Christians pray for. Well, this prayer is an example of what a heart set on God, that is someone who is seeking God and his kingdom first, will rightly desire in the kind of gifts he hopes to receive from God. And God gladly gives them. So when you consider what the so-called prosperity gospel often preaches, you know, pray for good health, pray for wealth, oh, and pray for spiritual blessings, whatever that means. Well, it's... It's not what Agur prayed for, is it? And again, are any of those things evil in themselves? Of course not. If you read through the promises God makes to his people in Deuteronomy, God promised that if his people would remain in covenant with him, that's not a sinless state where they kept every last bit of the law perfectly, but rather it meant they would keep faith with God, including making use of the means he provided for their atonement from sin, well, they would enjoy prosperity from God, which included the fat of the land and the fruit of the vine for generations. As I read Scripture, there's a sense that really, though, from time to time, or really just from the time of being a toddler, we struggle against the enticement of wanting something now without having to wait for it. And like toddlers, we feel as though having to patiently wait on our parents, or as we grow into adulthood, God, to provide whatever we desire, to have to wait for it is actually wrong, if not evil, and we in turn lash out for our lack of happiness. If only I had this thing, then I would be happy and my problems would be solved. And it's telling that we never hear people say, if only I had God, then I would be happy. See, the Bible never condemns food, sex, money, authority, power, wealth, prosperity, personal property, possessions, or education. Never. What it condemns is when these things become the sources of our meaning, or our purpose, or our value, or our happiness. That is, when we substitute God with God's good gifts and pursue the gift instead of the giver. Inevitably, inevitably when this happens, our desires they have already become twisted and perverted. So at the heart of Agur's prayer for truthfulness and contentment is his desire for God himself. And the gifts he asked for are a reflection of this. It's like how Jesus answered Satan with that final temptation by way of the book of Deuteronomy. Man does not live by bread alone, but by the very word of God. And he does not put God to the test. As good as bread is, it is not bread that sustains our lives. It is God himself. So the point of Jesus' parable is that God does not withhold himself from those who want him. 
He freely gives of himself. In verses 11 and 12, Jesus says, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? So again, Jesus gives a ridiculous example. If your child asked you for food, and in this case, fish or eggs, which are staples of a healthy diet, what father would say, sure, kid, here's a snake. Eat that. Oh, wait, let me go get a scorpion. Even bad parents don't do that sort of evil. And Jesus' illustration ties back really to chapter 10, I think, when the 70 returned from their missionary journey. Do you remember that? And they reported that even demons were subject to them in Jesus' name. And in response, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, and behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Throughout Scripture, serpents and scorpions, among many other things, often stand as symbols for spiritual evil. It's why, for example, Pharaoh in the book of Exodus is described like the serpent of Genesis 3. What Jesus means is that God does not give wicked gifts to his people. Even when they may want them and ask for them, even as sinful fathers would not dream of giving their children snakes and scorpions to eat. But more so, God is not evil. He is good and in steadfast love endures forever, so he will not give the gifts of the evil one. He will give the gift of his Father, namely the Holy Spirit. It's like what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 6. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven... Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, Jesus is not saying that the daily concerns of our life do not matter to God. In fact, just the opposite. Let alone that we because we are spiritual and mature, should be unconcerned about things like food and clothing and should not pray for them. Food and clothing have been critical issues for all of humanity since Genesis 3, and they still are. When Jesus says, do not be anxious, he's not browbeating us. He's not saying, what's wrong with you? He's not saying that at all, as in, no, rather, he's, he's comforting us as in, you are struggling. You who have little faith and you're getting all worked up over these things, I'm telling you, God knows you. He knows what you're facing, and he will provide for you. After all, he teaches us to pray for our daily bread, which encompasses every need we may have. I mean, why teach us to pray for daily bread if he wasn't serious about it? You know, personally, I, I pray for all kinds of different things. I pray about my taxes, 
I pray about paperwork deadlines for scholarship applications. I pray for tests my kids have. I, I pray for teams I'm coaching. You better believe I pray for a win. And I even pray for resilience for when we don't win, right? I'm just listed things that are on my mind this week, right? And on and on it goes, and I don't think it's wrong or inappropriate for us to, to or lacking in faith or an, an, you know, an indication that we're immature or not very spiritual to pray for these things when he invites us to do this very thing. But even as Jesus encourages us to seek God with our daily concerns, as important as they are, and they are, they cannot be the end-all, be-all of our prayer life. Again, as Jesus teaches, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That is virtually the same thing God promised to his people in the book of Deuteronomy. Or as Jesus puts it in our passage, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now previously, or previous to this in Luke, the Holy Spirit has been active in just specific moments or events, like with Mary in the conceiving of Jesus, or like with Simeon in the temple prophesying about Jesus as a child. Uh, Central to John the Baptist's teaching and preaching was the promise that the Messiah would baptize his people with the Holy Spirit. And of course, Jesus himself has been filled with the Spirit. But here, Jesus teaches that God will freely give the Spirit to his people. To receive the Spirit is to receive, you see, God himself. It's to be indwelled by him through his Son. It's why at Pentecost, when the Spirit descended upon the apostles, the same fire of the burning bush and the glory cloud on Sinai and the fire of God's presence that descended on the temple, Solomon's temple, was now hovering over their heads. It was an indication that God was coming to make his home among his people. Heaven was coming to earth. That's why Paul refers to God's people as living bodily temples of the Holy Spirit and why with Jesus, the building of the temple, or that that building that is the temple, became obsolete. From Genesis 3 onward, from the promise made to Abraham, to the giving of the law and the tabernacle with Moses, to the promise of the Messiah King with David, to the building of the temple with Solomon, to the promise of the new covenant of Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, which included the promise of God writing the law on our hearts and giving us hearts of flesh, they all find their fulfillment in the Son, and in turn in the giving of the Spirit, every last one of them. So for God the Father to freely give his Son for the life of the world, and in turn for the Father and the Son together to give the Spirit, it's the triune God giving himself to his people. Here I am. I freely offer you me. So while God does give good gifts, like food and laughter and possessions and spouses and friends and children and wins for soccer teams, the greatest gift he gives is himself. It's why at the Lord's Supper, the meal that we're getting ready to celebrate, the meal both points to God's gracious provision for our daily needs. I mean, think about it. We're going to eat. It's not figurative. We're not faking it. We're going to eat. 
We're going to eat bread. We're going to drink grape juice and wine. Even as it points to how God has freely given himself to us in his son. And through his son, let's just think through this quickly. We have been justified. Watch me as I do this. I'll break that bread. And sometimes it's messy. Sometimes it sticks to the robe. Rightly so. His body broken for us. His blood poured out for the remission of our sins, atoning for us. Adopted, we were formerly his enemies, and now we are his children, invited like Mephibosheth, the grandson of Saul, and David's natural enemy to eat at the better David's table forever. We've been sanctified. We, we partake of the Son in all his benefits. We take him into us. We eat him. And through the giving of the Spirit who unites us to Jesus and works salvation in us, this is called union with Christ. And for my money, it's really one of the best doctrines the Bible teaches, that you are literally indwelled by God through his Son and the power of the Spirit. And it looks forward to our resurrection and our glorification. We eat this meal in anticipation of the life to come when, like Jesus, our bodies will be resurrected from the dead. Not some other body, the body you've got, which means they will be restored even as they will be changed from the perishable to the imperishable. So as we come to the Lord's table, keep all of this in mind of how much your God loves you and how at this table... He offers himself to you. The greatest gift that our God offers is himself. So this is not merely some empty ritual as the world may see it. Those with eyes to see and ears to hear know that at the heart of this meal is the gift of God himself, which he gives freely to his people without hesitation. Well, let me pray for us as we come to this meal. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your Son and the pouring out of the Spirit, which we enjoy. We thank you for this word taught by Jesus and how it speaks to how good you are and how faithful you are and how giving you are. I pray now as we come to the Lord's Supper that these words will be imprinted upon our hearts and minds through the Spirit, that we may believe them and in turn walk in them. For all this in Jesus' name. Amen.